Today we're continuing our series, Uh, we're up to Acts chapter 10. Today we're actually going to go through the entire uh, chapter today in Acts chapter 10. So what I want to do this morning is begin by reading the entirety of Acts chapter 10. So we've got 48 verses to work through this morning. So let's begin there in verse 1. It says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants, a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out and asked whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to this house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him, But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection, and I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your arms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord." So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. 
As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This is God's word. Father, we ask today that you would speak to us through your most holy word and show us what you have for us here today. Help me today, Lord. Amen. Well, I don't want to be that guy, but I feel like I kind of have to be. We are fast approaching the month of December, aren't we? Christmas is coming. (laughs) Hey. Now, I haven't been to Grand Central in a few weeks, but I'm sure the decorations are starting to manifest themselves in the shop. The Christmas trees are going to start to come out. Um, I'm sure even presents over the coming months are going to start to accumulate under trees in many households throughout Toowoomba and Highfields. And what we know is going to happen is that children everywhere will be staring at these gifts under the tree going, which ones are mine? Like that, that really big one over there, like who's that one for? I, I need to know which ones of these belong to me. And so on Christmas morning, and I've got to admit, I kind of still do this a little bit as an adult, you, you kind of nervously walk into the lounge room and you're like, which ones are mine? <laughs> you have a really, you know, you're conscious of self on Christmas morning, right? And then uh, I know something my mother used to do on Christmas morning when everyone's been allocated their gifts she then go out and bring out this one particularly large gift. And you're like, this is it. This is another one for me. And then she says those words, this is a shared present. This one's for everyone to open. A shared present? Mom, what kind of sick operation are you running here? I need to know which presents are mine. What belongs to me? And so in a kind of similar manner, what we see here in Acts chapter 10 is asking the question, when it comes to the blessings of the new covenant, who are they for? Is, is it... Thank you. They've been reading Acts 10. Is, is it just like an ethnic phenomenon, like for Jews only? Is that who the new covenant blessings are for? Or is this an, is this an all play? Are all nations welcomed into the blessings of the new covenant? You see, you're going to have a hard time reading the Bible... Uh, particularly the New Testament, if you're not willing to engage with some of these uh, ethnic-related questions concerning the blessings of the New Covenant. There's quite a bit of ink being spilt on the pages of the New Testament asking the question, who are the blessings of the New Covenant for? And so what we're going to see here in Acts chapter 10 is that moment in history where God declared 
so explicitly that the blessings of the new covenant are for everyone. Okay, this is a gift everybody gets to open. Okay, so as we enter here in uh, Acts chapter 10, the first thing that we actually encounter here is what you might just call a devout Gentile. So we, we come across a man named Cornelius. Now, we, we learn a couple of things about Cornelius at the outset. Number one, uh, he's a centurion, okay, so he's a Roman citizen, and he commands a group of about 100 men uh, known as the Italian cohort, okay? So he would have been a non-commissioned officer, wouldn't have gone to battle too often, but basically guys like uh, him and the, the guys he commanded would have been called up in times of desperate need, okay? So think of Cornelius as kind of like an army reserves captain of sorts. That's how you would best understand him. But then the second thing it says is that he is a man who feared God. Now, what does that exactly imply? Well, in, in Jewish synagogues back in the first century, there was a handful of different people that would hang out. So you had your, your ethnic Jews. These were your, your born and bred Israelites. They, they made up synagogues most of the time. But then every now and then they would convert uh, someone who was a non-Jew, a Gentile, and bring them into the fold of Jewish customs. Okay, So someone who would, they would abandon all their pagan theology, they would adopt a Jewish worldview that would include going through the ceremonial ritual of circumcision. I mean, they went all in. You, they were called proselytes. But then somewhere in between, you had these group of people called God-fearers. Okay? They weren't ethnic Jews and they weren't fully converted proselytes, they were kind of somewhere in the middle. They, they'd subscribed to a fair bit of Jewish theology, but they weren't willing to get circumcised. Um, I can't blame them, to be totally honest. Um, so they were kind of like a, a halfway man, if you like, in terms of the, the three different types of people you would find uh, in a synagogue. And, and what we see about this man is that his worship is devout and it's pure. It says that his, his worship has gone up sweetly, uh, to God. It's like a sweet aroma up to, up to the Lord. So in a sense, this guy is kind of like a, a model Old Testament believer. He, he's really how Jesus ought to have found the entire nation of Israel when he came. This is a man, devout, giving alms to the poor. He's circumcised in the heart, using Moses' language, and he is ready for the coming of the Messiah, much like I'm sure Jesus would have hoped the whole nation of Israel would have been ready. And so what we find with this man is that he's been faithful with the revelation of the old covenant, but we're about to find out how faithful is he going to be when he receives the new covenant. Okay? So this guy, is, he's up to date so far, but how's it going to go when the, when the new software comes in, so to speak? So he summons this man, Peter, and we've got to see Peter's been up to a fair bit in, in coming to this man here, Cornelius. Uh, as where we picked off last week, we saw that Saul kind of goes into the background for a little while. Saul had just been miraculously converted. He's preaching in synagogues. And then we see him kind of fade off into the background and Peter comes into the foreground and Peter's doing some incredibly miraculous work. Uh, you can see there on the back end of Acts chapter 9, you can see he's demonstrating that he's walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. He, he's, he's killing it in the apostle game. You, know, you can see it there. that he's, uh, There's a miraculous story where a man who was paralyzed is miraculously healed. He says to him, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. Ever since, bed making has not been a joyful thing, but for this man, <laughs> making his bed was a very joyful activity. And then moving along, Peter goes to Joppa and um, there's a woman there, uh, Tabitha, who actually passes away. But then through the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter goes to her the same way he saw his Lord approach a similar woman during his uh, three-year earthly ministry. And he says, arise. And in the same manner, she arises. 
Now, why are these two miracles here? What it's showing us is that Peter is moving very well in his apostolic office. He's moving in the power of the Holy Spirit. And there's an interesting little clue there at the end. It says that he was staying with Simon, a tanner. Now, what, what does a tanner do for a living? This is not like the tanners on the Gold Coast who are always trying to get a, a tan. We've got plenty of those back home. Now, a tanner is someone who works with the, the dead skin of animals, okay, to produce leather. So this man, uh, this Simon, uh, a tanner, is ceremonially unclean. Normally, a Jew wouldn't hang out with a tanner. That, that wouldn't fly too well in the first century. So you can see there's kind of like a little transition point happening with Peter. He's been doing really well ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then just as a little side note, it says he was staying with someone who was ceremonially unclean. It's as if he's just getting warmed up for what's about to happen next. And so we have this devout Gentile who comes into contact with what we might call a hesitant Jew. Uh, It says that uh, in the next verses that Peter fell into a trance. He he has a vision of sorts, right? And um, basically, instead of telling a man to rise and and make his bed this time, basically this kind of bedsheet kind of thing uh, descends from heaven in this vision, this trance that he sees, and it's filled with all of these animals, uh, ones that in particular were considered ceremonially unclean for a Jew. And Peter hears these crazy instructions, rise Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's going, Lord, you, you've got to be joking. I, I can't partake of these foods. Like, I, I haven't touched these my whole life. I've been following a devout kosher diet ever since I was a boy. And you can trace that back to the book of Leviticus. If you really want, you can read the entire chapter of Leviticus 11. It'll tell you exactly which animals you can and can't eat. But just as a brief uh, summary, Leviticus chapter 20 says this. It says, You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So, Peter's got this background where you, don't, you can't just indulge in any animal that you like. You have to be quite selective in order to be holy unto God. And then he hears these instructions, rise, kill, and eat. Like This is a major worldview shift for Peter. I mean, you've got to think, this is like taking a vegan to a butcher or a crossfitter to a bakery. Like This just would not have gone too well for Peter. He's like, I don't, I don't roll like this. This isn't my scene. Lord, I can't eat. And so God says to him something really bizarre. He says, what God has made clean, do not call common. And says this has to happen three times before this kind of bedsheet thing uh, rises. Now, you might be thinking, that's a bit of a contradiction, right? I mean, how can God one minute in Leviticus say that all these certain foods are unclean and then in the next minute say to Peter, hey, don't call unclean what I've called clean. Like, does that not gel well? <laughs> Has anyone else seen that contradiction? I mean, surely it can't be both. How are we going to explain that? Well, you see, um, when I was a kid, like many of you, I'm sure, I learned how to ride a bike. Now, it, it's fair to say that the way I rode a bike as a kid is a little bit different to how I would ride a bike now. Okay? You could say that my bike riding experience has been progressive. 
Okay? I started out with training wheels in my backyard and I'd just be doing circles in the backyard with my training wheels, learning how to properly relate to this weird device called a bicycle. All right? You've got the pedals, you've got the whole brake thing happening here, you've got to be careful not to fall either way. I'm learning how can I relate to this device. I'm unfamiliar with it. And so I had to start out by using... Uh, uh, pardon me. <coughs> I had to start out by using training wheels. But as I get older, if, if I was still in the backyard now and Alice was watching and I had my training wheels on, you're probably saying that my cycling experience has probably been a little bit inhibited. I'm not quite reaching the full climactic experience that is cycling. And a similar, in a similar kind of manner, God's revelation of himself in Scripture and his revelation of his redemptive plan is progressive. It's, it's what theologians call progressive revelation that is to say you you don't get all the details at once with god he gradually unfolds his redemptive story over time and it has different chapters in history now ultimately the earlier chapters were just there to prepare us for that ultimate time when jesus would come with the new covenant that we would be able to see things more clearly and relate to god in the most ultimate way through christ so that's how i had to relate to a bicycle And then you've got these Jews in Egypt. They've they've just come out of Egypt, rescued out of slavery. They have no idea how to relate to God. So what's God going to do? He has to give them new categories. He has to give them training wheels, if you like, to show them how to properly relate to them. So what does he do? He, He devises a sacrificial system, a ceremonial system, where different physical realities are supposed to point to greater spiritual realities. Okay? So... It's, it's not necessarily to say that at one point in history, pigs were considered ghastly before God, and then the next minute God says, no, I actually kind of like them. That, that's not what we're about. God was basically saying, every time you come into contact with a pig or something else ceremonially unclean, and you go, I need to wash, I, I, something's wrong. I can't go to the temple because there's something defiled on me or in me, that physical reality is actually meant to remind you of a more ultimate spiritual reality that you're morally not ready to go to God. So all of these physical things like food laws and sacrifices were ultimately meant to push us towards a greater spiritual reality. Having a consciousness of the physical led you to a consciousness of the spiritual. And Jesus makes this pretty clear in Matthew 15. Um, He says, It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. You see, eating bacon doesn't add to your sin any more than the blood of bull of goats takes it away. These were just earlier chapters in redemptive history. You see, this is why Paul in Galatians actually refers to the law as our guardian. Or if you've got like a a King James version or anything like that, they might say schoolmaster or headmaster or tutor. They were basically just there to take you by the hand and guide you towards Christ. That was their function just like training wheels. Now, just think about it this way. Uh, imagine there was no Old Testament for a moment. Some of you might think that would be a good thing for devotions, but just, just imagine. <laughs> imagine there was no Old Testament revelation, no Old Testament scriptures, no Mosaic law, no sacrifices, no food laws, nothing. And then out of nowhere, some guy named John the Baptist rocks up, rocks up in the desert and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You'd be going... <laughs> Lamb, Lamb of God, what are you talking about? I don't, have, I don't have the interpretive categories to kind of 
even know what you're on about there, mate. What sin of the... What's that? You see, it's only after years of watching sacrificed animals at the temple that when John the Baptist can declare, behold the Lamb of God, that you go, yeah, I've, I've got some categories for lambs and atonement and sin and a holy God. So you can understand what Jesus did only by having the groundwork laid down first. In fact, uh, John Calvin gets at this idea really well. He says, If a householder instructs, rules and guides his children one way in infancy and another way in youth and still another in young manhood, we shall not on this account call him fickle and say that he has abandoned his purpose. What was irregular about the fact that God confined them to rudimentary teaching commensurate with their age, but has trained us through a firmer and, so to speak, more manly discipline? In the fact that he has changed the outward form and manner, he does not show himself subject to change. Rather, he has accommodated himself to men's capacity, which is varied and changeable. It was the Lord's will that this childhood be trained in the elements of this world and in little external observances as rules for children's instruction until Christ should shine forth through whom the knowledge of believers was to mature. So what we have here in Acts chapter 10 is not a contradiction. Removing the food laws is just like removing the training wheels off a bike. Christ has come. You can pedal without them now. And there is a far greater experience of relating to God available. So that's what's going on here in uh, Acts chapter 10. And now, I, just as a side note, I think it's important that we, we understand these things. Because the second I say, oh, we get to do, a la- do away with the food laws, some people think that means we get to do away with the Old Testament. <laughs> It's like, oh, we, we don't need that anymore. There are people today who say, well, I'm a New Testament Christian, and they completely reject the old. But that's actually, do you know, that's actually one of the oldest heresies that's ever plagued the church. started as early as the second century. It's been going on for 1,900 years where people have rejected the Old Testament. And basically, they have this weird dichotomy where they say, well, it's almost like you've got two different gods at operation. Like, surely you can't reconcile the two. But the fact is, there is a continual overarching and complementary narrative going on from Old Testament to New. Um, A Dutch theologian, Herman Barvink, he put it this way. He said, The New Testament is the truth, the essence, the core, and the actual content of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is revealed in the New, while the New Testament is concealed in the Old. So yeah, there's definitely points of discontinuity as we move through the narrative, but Just because we see the food laws lifted up does not mean we abandon the first two-thirds of the Bible. So that one's for free. So what do we see next? Well, we see Peter. He's he's wrestling here about the implications of what he's just seen. It's inwardly perplexed. He still hasn't figured it out. And he's on this journey. And it says that while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. And then we see this dialogue unfold where Cornelius has received his vision and Peter explains his. And so he basically concedes to to go along on this journey with him. And there's two strange things uh, happen when these men first meet. First of all, we see, well, Cornelius starts to worship Peter. Although he's a God-fearer, he's got some serious trimming of the hedges to be done in his theology. Bowing to Peter is not okay. So Peter says, well, stop, stand up. I too am a man. But then secondly, we see that somewhere between where he'd left in Joppa and on the road to Caesarea, Peter starts to put a few things together. 
you can see the penny starts to drop on this vision that he's seen. Initially, it says he was inwardly perplexed, but by the time he sees Cornelius, he's kind of figured it out. I wonder, I wonder what kind of things were going on in his head, like as he's on that journey. Uh, wait a minute, I've been staying with a tanner. They're not ceremonially clean. Right, and I'm on, I'm on a journey with Gentiles who are not ceremonially clean. And I'm doing that so I can go and visit a Roman citizen who is also not ceremonially clean. And then there was the whole bedsheet thing that happened where God taught, I get it now. <laughs> you see, a few things are starting to come together for Peter. You see, the apostles didn't rock up in Acts chapter 1 and have all this figured out. Peter's figuring it out on this journey. This whole idea that God was expanding the family of God to outside Israel was a new idea for Peter. And we see him here, he's figuring it out. And do you notice what he says? He says, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Now, did you notice that? He didn't say, God has shown me I should not call any food common or unclean. He says he should not call any person common or unclean. You see, it's true. God was definitely lifting off the, the food laws. But that was pointing Peter to a greater reality that you're not to call people unclean. The gospel of the New Testament, the gospel of the New Covenant is for all nations. And Peter's just figuring this stuff out. So what happens next? Well, Cornelius explains you know, why he sent for Peter and it's evident he's, he's gathered a bunch of people together to, to hear what Peter has to say. He says, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Um, this is an incredible reception from, from these listeners. And so Peter thinks to himself, all right, I feel a sermon coming on. And so what does Peter do next? He, and he begins the sermon with the, the freshest revelation that he's just discovered for himself. He says, God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, at first glance, that sounds like a works-based gospel, doesn't it? You know, do what is right and you'll be accepted. <laughs> Where's the gospel in that? That's a works-based gospel. Well, keep reading. He then begins to speak about all the incredible things Christ did during his earthly ministry and how that testified to who he was. He speaks about the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus and that forgiveness of sins is available through him. He's made peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And then he, he goes down further. He doesn't water down the gospel. He says Jesus will judge the living and the dead and that the only forgiveness that is available is through his name. It says there in verse 43. You see, for Cornelius, it's, it's no longer enough to simply be a God-fearer. This sermon from Peter where he says forgiveness is available through Jesus' name is basically, in a sense, to get him off the fence. See, it's not enough to be close to the things of God. Now, granted, up to this point, his, his worship has been going up as a sweet aroma up to God. This is why he was summoned in the first place. He's been faithful with the amount of revelation, that progressive revelation that he's received so far. You could say he's positively responded to the old covenant. But the question is, how is he going to respond to the new covenant? What's he going to do with Jesus? See, something could happen here. He's, if he rejects Jesus, it's not okay. <laughs> He can't just continue to be a God-fearer. You can't reject Jesus and think that you're still somehow attached to Jehovah. Now, in times gone by, there was Old Testament saints 
who believed less than what is being required of Cornelius here. I mean, if you read about how Abraham came to faith, it's quite a basic profession. It says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. The, The promise that he'd received at that point in history was just that through him, through his descendants, through his offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed. So you can see for, for Abraham, he, he believed in faith. He was saved by faith, not by works. But the amount of revelation that was available at that point in time was less than what's available for Cornelius. And so for Cornelius, he now gets the full story and Peter basically asks him, what are you going to do with Christ? Are you going to respond positively to the new covenant? See, basically, you can, you can pretend that you're a Lord of the Rings fan until the cows come home. You can say, I love the Fellowship of the Ring. I've watched it a million times. I love the Two Towers. I've watched it a bazillion times. But I utterly reject the return of the king. Like, Sorry? <laughs> if you reject the last episode, you're really just rejecting the entire saga. You can't really say that you're a fan of Lord of the Rings if you're going to reject the last movie. And really, that's what Cornelius has to decide here. He's been faithful with the revelation he's received thus far, but what does he do with the ultimate revelation of Jesus Christ? That's what we need to decide here. Well, in case we were wondering uh, how Cornelius is going to respond, it says that while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. How's that for crowd participation? (laughs) Peter's thinking, I'm killing this sermon. Look what's happening. As he was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And then the guys who had accompanied Peter on this jersey, they're amazed. And you hear what comes out of their mouth. They're going, how did this motley crew get the Holy Spirit? How how is it that the, the new covenant blessings have come upon these guys? I thought that was just for us. The, the people with Peter are just utterly amazed. Yeah, John Calvin puts it this way. He says, But however many testimonies of Scripture proclaim the calling of the Gentiles, when the apostles were about to undertake it, the call seemed so new and strange to them that they shrank back from it as a monstrous thing. At last they set about it, trembling and not without misgiving. And no wonder, for it seemed completely unreasonable that the Lord, who for so many ages had singled out Israel from all other nations, should suddenly change his plan and abandon that choice. Prophecies had indeed foretold this, but men could not heed these prophecies without being startled by the newness of the thing that had met their eyes. What we see here on the back end of Acts chapter 10 is what is commonly called the Gentile Pentecost. You remember back in Acts 1.8, I've mentioned this a few times in the last few weeks, Jesus said the gospel would go forward in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world, to the Gentiles. And it's as if with each geographical trajectory of the gospel, there's almost like a separate Pentecost event for each of those geographies. There's one in Jerusalem in Acts 2. We saw it for the Samaritans with Simon a few weeks ago. And then now we have what's often called the Gentile Pentecost here in Acts chapter 10. So this is not to say how we come to experience the Holy Spirit on a Sunday. No, this is just showing us that at a moment in redemptive history, God said, I'm extending the family. That's what we see here. God is extending the family. And so Peter, seeing that they had believed upon Jesus and received the Holy Spirit, he sees it fit that they be baptized. And so what had been happening in bits and pieces in the Old Testament where you might see Rahab, a Gentile, come into the the fellowship of God's people, or you might see Ruth come into the fellowship, now they're going to come flocking in by the masses. And you and I are part of those masses. Um, I mean, unless we have some ethnic Jews 
here today, maybe we do, we're all Gentiles. <laughs> Acts chapter 10 has made its way from here all the way to us here in Australia. This is the family we've been swept up into. And it all started, the, the salvation story that you and I have been caught up into began here in Acts chapter 10. That's pretty cool. You want to study your family history? You're looking at it. <laughs> Acts chapter 10 is your family history. God has expanded the family. So what do we take away from this? Well, there's a couple of things I want us to take away here. The first one is a little bit more theological, but it does move toward the practical. You, ne- you need to see here, and you're welcome to disagree with me on this, that in Acts chapter 10, and what we see throughout the rest of the New Testament, is that there is one people of God. Just one. You see, there's a really, really popular, very common teaching that, that still continues today in the 21st century. It was particularly popular uh, last century. It's still taught by some of my favorites. I'm a big John MacArthur fan. If you're looking for a good podcast, get some John MacArthur in your life this week. He teaches this uh, particular view. And it's basically that says that there's two peoples of God. You've got the church and then you've got Israel as though they're two separate redemptive paradigms running parallel. Some people teach that. But what I would implore you to consider with me this morning is in looking at Acts chapter 10 and also uh, scriptures like Ephesians 2, I want you to see that God has actually brought those two things, Israel and the Gentiles together, and formed them into one people of God. So look with me in Ephesians 2, verse 13 through 16. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh and dividing wall of, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, did you notice that? He said he was going to make us both one, that there would be one man in place of the two. So here's here's the big question, and again, you are welcome to disagree with me on this. There are differing views. The question is, is ethnic Israel still God's chosen people? I would forward to you that they're not. Now, now let, me be, let me be clear when I say that. I'm not saying that the church has replaced Israel. I'm, not, I'm definitely not saying that. But the question that we have to ask, which is the same question the Apostle Paul makes us ask, is this. Who are the descendants of Abraham? When you, when you read the New Testament, who does the New Testament say the descendants of Abraham are? Well, here's what Paul said in Romans 9. He said, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. He says further in Galatians chapter 3, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to promise. If you're in Christ this morning, you are Abraham's offspring. Paul made that clear in Galatians. So I'm not saying that the church has replaced Israel, but what I'm saying is is that the church, those who are united to Christ, 
They are the true descendants of Abraham and they are the true Israel. If you're in Christ, you're an Israelite this morning. There's a really um, clever quote by a man named Samuel, uh, Samuel Waldron. He put it this way. He says, As the butterfly surpasses the caterpillar from which it emerges, so the church as the new Israel surpasses the old Israel. The butterfly does not exactly replace the caterpillar. It is the caterpillar in a new phase of existence. In the same way, to speak of the church replacing Israel is to forget that the church is Israel in a newly reformed and expanded phase of existence. In a word, terminology like replacement theology disguises the biblical fact that the church is really the continuation of Israel. So the first thing we need to see from Acts chapter 10, the implication of God expanding the family is that he has one family, not two. God has one bride, not two. And then the second thing we need to take away from this, less theological and a lot more practical, and this is a question I asked on the back of the Samaritan Pentecost a few weeks ago, it's this. Is there anyone, any people group, any race, or any socioeconomic class who we would prefer that the grace of God did not visit? In what ways do we show partiality towards those who are different from us? And, I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. We, we have a bit of that in Australian culture, don't we? How do, how do, we give nicknames to people from other nations in Australia. The Poms, the Kiwis. We have some very legitimate tensions in Australia, even with those who associate as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. This, this, is a, this is an Australian thing to engage with. We have a global gospel. We have to wrestle with the ethnic implications of the gospel. It's an all play. This is not a, an ethnic phenomenon just for Israelites. This is for everyone. So we need to ask ourselves this week, maybe even in the context of the local church, do we find ourselves showing partiality towards different kinds of people? That's one to ponder this week. And the band can come and join me as I wrap up. You see, Peter began his sermon by saying, God shows no partiality. You see, when Jesus left, what was our great commission? He says, go therefore and make disciples of who? Of all nations. Our gospel is a global phenomenon. And that's our charge. Now, I used to have a, an old friend and mentor, and he used to say, Jaden, you can't fulfill the great commission without a passport. And what he was getting at is that the gospel is a global phenomenon. The gospel has to go to all the nations. And so our charge is to get after it and ask ourselves, is there anything in our heart that would hinder us from wanting to see the gospel reach those who are different from us? You know, we've got people in our church who minister to refugees every Thursday morning. That's a good thing. That is an incredible thing. That is Acts chapter 10 on wheels. And so my charge to you this morning is in what way Perhaps have you been showing partiality? You need to open your heart to others who God has extended the family to because we have a global gospel. You and I are those who were once far off. We were the Gentiles. We were not part of the commonwealth of Israel, but we've been brought in. We've been grafted in, as Paul would say. And so we should be ready to embrace those who are still outside and we should be so incredibly thankful that we were brought in in the first place because we did not deserve it. <laughs> Forgiveness of sins is only available through Jesus Christ, through his name, not of works, lest anyone should boast.
So let's consider that today. And as we worship, may you be reminded of your salvation. Let's pray.